0: It was very much based on the previous record's tug and pull with the press.
1: They want you to give the headline. It's it's gotcha journalism. The energy of that song is pretty unbeatable.
0: You know, I don't really know
2: why we haven't thrown it back into the set, and I'm sure that we probably will.
3: Johnny was fucking hammered. Jimmy was gone. (laughs) Jimmy was in jail. And they didn't want to fucking stop.
4: Hello everybody and welcome to Tracks, the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast powered by Death Bats Club. I am your host Bees, it is an honour to be back with you and thank you to everyone who checked out our very first episode on Welcome to the Family. If you did, if you checked it out, if you downloaded it, if you told a friend, thanks very much because it was actually the number one music podcast on planet Earth for a little while there, which is wild to say, but nice one. Thanks, everybody. That was on Welcome to the Family, but today we're going to be discussing Trashed and Scattered. It's track five on City of Evil. Make sure you're subscribed, because every single month we're going to take you behind the scenes of not only a song from Avenged Sevenfold's back catalogue, but Avenged Sevenfold's story just told like never before. This is the official podcast, so you get all of the stories from the horse's mouth. There is some incredible stuff on this show, not only behind the music of Trashed and Scattered, the artwork of City of Evil, we speak to them about how they got signed to a major label and much, much more, including another world-class story at the end of this involving Jimmy the Rev Sullivan being chased by authorities. The Deathmatch Club Discord is the place to be. Don't forget, letters from the DBC are going to come up every single month on this podcast. You're going to get the opportunity to ask questions to the band, stick around after the credits at the end of the show for a couple of those and of course every single month we are bringing you exclusive artwork for the song that we are covering this month, Welcome to the Family has already been and gone, that was available as a limited edition t-shirt, Trashed and Scattered t-shirt is going to be available at a7xworld.com it might be up as you're listening to this, if not, going to be up very very soon a7xworld.com, this is a limited edition drop, the Trashed and scattered T-shirt. The artwork every single month. We look at the NFT space, and we want to give an artist some real exposure and someone that we trust and that we think is great. And this month, Dylan 777 Arts. That's at Dylan 777 Art provides the artwork for Trash and Scattered. Go and check him out. 777 Art on OpenSea, and of course. Every single month, you are going to get the opportunity to win a one of one NFT, the official artwork for Trashed and Scattered, as done by Dylan777Art going to be available. Make sure you keep it locked on the Discord. You'll have to be in there to enter the competition. Someone won a one of one NFT artwork for Welcome to the Family this month, Trashed and Scattered. So that's enough talk from me. It's a long podcast. Settle in and enjoy Trashed and Scattered. City of Evil. Even the name leaving my lips brings about a reverence that you will feel stirring inside the core of your very being. In fact, I can't even say City of Evil without my face cracking into a smile here. But to even begin to start telling the story of trashed and scattered or, in fact any of the fan favorite album tracks or classic singles that we're going to cover throughout this podcast, we have to begin to unravel the beast that is the album itself. Whenever a publication or a website or a tier list or any kind of chart that you'll ever see has an entry from Avenged Sevenfold in it. It's always City of Evil that's the album that they pick. Well, at least 99.9% of the time, but that's the wider world. That's what they think. And we here at Tracks are more interested in talking to our own, and that means you guys. In fact, if we were to open this pit up in the Death Bats Club discord and start a Royal Rumble about what the best Avenged album is, I think we'd find the voting a lot closer than the outside world might expect. But that is an argument for another day. The best place to start this episode is to ask about this album. Is it the band's appetite for destruction? Is this Avenged Sevenfold's hybrid theory? They're back in black, their black album. Their classic album that is put forward when it's time to discuss whether or not Avenged Sevenfold make their way onto the Mount Rushmore of heavy music. There's only one place to start and that is to ask the guys, is this album that particular record is it the one that will put them into the pantheons of the greats and listen carefully and you will hear some new album news don't say i don't do anything for you
3: every record i'm looking at it going this is our sergeant peppers but you can't have a billion sergeant peppers if you're going to use a beatles reference so um to me it's like kind of a rubber soul or something it's it's when It's the first time something new was coming coming out, but it was strangely familiar, and we were able to utilize not just studio tricks, but you had amazing songwriters like Jimmy, amazing songwriters like Zach, Matt. Um, I was working on my craft very diligently, so I think think you had a kind of a powerhouse of songwriting there, but never at the sacrifice for the musicality. You know, never at the sacrifice for the for what the song, the goal of the song, if it was. 10 minutes and it felt good, it was 10 minutes. If it was three minutes and it felt good, it was three minutes. We just didn't sacrifice anything. Uh, and, we, and, we, and, and that includes melodies. We didn't sacrifice on, on melodies. We wrote these things that were beautiful to our ears, that gave us goosebumps. I always think, like, I'm, I'm really proud of the record that we're doing right now. This is the most proud I've ever felt of a record. But you can't take youth for granted we, were, we didn't have houses. <laughs> we didn't have shit. We didn't have kids, wives. We, we had best friends, girlfriends. Um, our writer dies that were just down to hang the studio, down to support, and now everybody has lives and, and different things. And I don't see that as hindering our creative process, but I certainly know for certain there was nothing getting in the way or standing in the way subconsciously or consciously of us making a fearless crazy um in our opinion and iconic record and uh and we knew it was different
0: i think every record showed some sort of growth and i think you know waking the fallen to some kids that was a very important one i think um city of evil put us on the map but to be honest it didn't put us on the map until we were on trl of all things right like we put this record out and there was a bunch of people really upset about the difference in sound and um i have some theories on why that was so shocking to us, but um, I don't know, man. I think there's really cool things about every record, and I think every record for us has to find its audience because they're always so different from each other. And City of Evil is definitely a time and place, and there's definitely a lot of people that coalesced around that record, and 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 they hold it up because when you hear like YouTube videos of people doing, oh, we're gonna do this song in this in this band sort of style, they always go to dueling guitars and City of Evil stuff. Um, and I think it's so funny because there's just so much more to the band than that. But it definitely it definitely pinpoints a time and place. They think about us in the makeup. They think about us in the rowdy lifestyle, the crazy interviews. Um, they think about, you know, this era of Avenge Sevenfold as being, you know, what we kind of always get pinned as. So maybe it is. I mean, to me, nah.
4: Yeah, that is a debate for another day, and I'm sure it's one we'll have on this podcast. But first, I want to take you back to before City of Evil was released and be a little bit self-indulgent with you, and that is to talk about Waking the Fallen and the impact that it had. It was a massive record for me personally. I love nu metal, and I love pop punk, and I I love a bunch of stuff, but the type of heavy music that pulled me into this world and changed my life was the likes of Metallica and Pantera and those... Big riffs, big solos, long song structures, that kind of vibe. And so when Waking the Fallen came out, it really changed the landscape of everything because those bands had done it in the past, but this band was here doing it for us right the fuck now. And here is a big story. And if you are old enough to remember The Beast and the Harlot coming out, you will probably remember this. And if not, please bear with me on this because... I was infatuated with Wake and the Fallen and there was no record I was looking forward to more than the new Avenged Sevenfold record. The Beast and the Harlot is released. You hit play on it. It opens with that enormous intro and it feeds from the revs, double kicks going straight into that verse riffs. It's still to this day one of my favourite moments in any Avenged Sevenfold song and the verse rips and it gets to that chorus and anyone, and I do mean anyone who says that they took that chorus in their stride and was like, wow, brilliant. I just don't believe them because even someone as dedicated as I and someone who listened to it three or four times and was then in with the chorus, it took those couple of listens because the first time you hear that chorus was a whole bunch of what the fuck. And um, here's Matt Shadows to talk about what it was like to be on the other end of that as it was released and the changing of gears between Waking the Fallen and City of Evil. Take it away, Matt.
0: So one thing interesting about this song was that we had released Beast in the Harlot as the first single and it started off with not the best reaction, right? It was... um, this is horrible. This is a, is this a joke? And I was just so bummed on the reaction that I called the guys. And I'm like, we got to release trash and scattered. We got to put trash and scattered out and show everybody that, you know, there's some heavy, crazy stuff on this record. And that's totally going to shut everyone up. So we're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Let's do that. So we put out trash and scattered. And we got the totally same reaction. And that's when it dawned on me that, wow, waking the Fallen, to city of evil is a crazy leap. And no matter what song you put out from this record, it's not going to be able to bridge the gap because remember we, we were living our lives from waking the fallen to city of evil one day at a time, progressing into this sound. We had been working on this thing for like two years. So it was a slow, you know, progression to get to that point. So to me, it was not that big of a jump for the fan. The last thing they heard of us was waking the fallen. And then City of Evil. And it's a fucking smack in the face. And like, what are these guys thinking? So it didn't matter what we put out. And that's when we realized every record needs to find its audience because a fan of Waking the Fallen isn't necessarily going to be a fan of City of Evil and vice versa. So Trashed and Scattered we thought was our saving grace and it turned out to just be another freaking
4: dud. See, I wasn't bullshitting from the horse's mouth. There you go, like it was a weird reaction to the beast and the harlot. And that's what made it such an interesting decision for Trashed and Scattered to be next. So let's ask the guys. What made Trashed and Scattered the right response? If everyone is out there on the internet losing their shit about the Beast and the Harlot, why is Trashed and Scattered the song from the rest of City of Evil to combat the haters?
3: It's grittier, a lot of a lot of fucking energy, a lot of energy. Uh, the end are some of the best melodies that I think are on, on that record. The attitude of the verses, next level and it doesn't have an official solo in it but it's some of my favorite guitar work on it the l- little like uh, syncopated pick slide and promise you i wasn't thinking syncopated pick slide when when that was happening but, bah, 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 bah. it's got to come in chaotic it's got to be crazy and little flurries little energy moments right Little bursts of fucking energy, just little prepubescent fucking like or even toddler fucking outbursts for no reason. Just it had a ton of energy, just a ton of fucking energy. It's got the neoclassical stuff, but it's not too syrupy. It's got hints of, you know, the GNR style shit, but it's not too... On your, on your sleeve, it's just like when right when you've had a, enough of that, you start to think, oh, this reminds me of Guns N' Roses. Should I listen to Guns N' Roses instead? It does some shit, and the energy of that song is pretty unbeatable.
2: In the early days of Avenged, we were so rooted in the hardcore scene and the metal scene and the punk rock scene, and Beast in the Harlot comes in, Matt screaming, double bass, he- huge heavy riff, blasts into this almost um, poppy, sort of bad religion-esque but way popular chorus. And for us, it's all we'd been working with. We're like, yeah, this is this is this is cool, you know, this is where the song needs to be. But it's obvious to our fans that they didn't know how capable Avenged was of switching gears and stylistically within a song, within an album, within the artwork, we're we're always gonna mix it up. And it threw a lot of our fans for a loop. Whereas if you were more into that metal scene, more into that hardcore scene. A song like Trashed and Scattered is going to give you a taste of the vocals that Matt's bringing, the guitars that me and Sin are bringing, the drums that Rev, you know, is laying down. And it's not going to scare you quite as bad as this poppy chorus coming out of this, you know, huge monster intro and riff. And we kind of realized, oh shit, like we kind of have to slowly walk our fans into what we're doing because they don't quite get us yet. We're still a new band. We're not, I mean, at this point, our fans know to expect the unexpected. But at that point, it was like, you know, we're, we're just trying to make fans, not, not scare them off.
1: It was a good pick because the riffage, the length, the, the intricacy, it was showing, it has a little bit of everything in it, doesn't it, right? It's got the fast pace stuff. It slows down for a bit. It has the attitude of a, of a, of a GNR era it has the breakdown it has the solos it has the duels and then it has a peaceful ending like i think it just runs the gamut i think it was just like another another way to show um what that album is all about like it's just it's all over the place in a beautiful way
4: Johnny is spot on when he talks about this song having a bit of absolutely everything in it, but that's City of Evil in general, isn't it? And one of the things that's fascinating about this podcast as we begin to take our journey through each individual record and delving into these songs is that there are some really weird left-of-centre things that come up. In fact, if you didn't check out the first episode, there was some great stuff about Welcome to the Family being involved with the Dave Matthews Band. So go and check that out if you haven't done already. Make sure you're subscribing so you don't miss anything. But here's the point, right? There's some weird influences that come out of left field, and um, if you've got a good ear and you've got good taste in music, you might catch some of them. But here's Matt to talk about just the thought inside the making of the album and those kind of influences that were creeping their way into Avenge Sevenfold Sound.
0: At the time, we were we were looking for everything heavier, faster, you know, more melodic, more intense. And we had really fallen in love with Children of Bodom and Snot Arctica and all these things that we were hearing from Europe. And we had Sinister Gates in the band and Sinister Gates could play anything, right? And it was like, and I remember playing him like Hate Breeder. And him being like, I can play that. Like, we can do that. And so we started just writing these songs that were just like like this American version of like competing with those bands. And, you know, but also having this American attitude that there's no way we were going to be able to shake. It was who we were. So I just heard something that was faster, but more melodic, crazier, over the top. And it really appealed to us.
3: I think it was just something truly different. Um, But for a lot of people... You know, this doesn't define the music to me, but I heard this quite a bit, how refreshing it was to hear guitar solos or guitar oriented music um, on the radio in, in kind of a, on a popular stage. That never mattered to me. But, you know, the older that you get and the further away from things, you, you can kind of see them for more objectively. And that kind of kind of makes sense. So there, there's definitely an excitement there. And but there's a familiarity too, because there's a lot of old school influences and stuff. We were listening to a lot of old school shit. Um, and then the punk rocks of the world. I mean, we were listening to everything, to be quite honest.
0: There was a lot of stuff going on during The Wake in the Fall, and there was this hot topic scene. There was this warp tour scene that we kind of and we were famously quoted as saying it was a sinking ship, right? And and we wanted to we were getting into all this stuff and we're like, well, first off, the ethos of this band is just to write whatever you're feeling. And um, and it was just very exciting to us to kind of throw everything we had done previously and go, okay, we did Waking the Fallen. It's done. Let's go do something completely different. We just went and did our own thing.
4: I think Matt touches upon something that's really special about Avenged Sevenfold and that is that they have that ethos to do things their own way and I believe that all festival headliners not the bands that make it second headliner not the bands that are just big bands the bands that make it to the absolute top of the mountain are always bands that go against the grain and do what they want to do and that's such a big part of City of Evil and every album that you can Point at in Avenge Sevenfold's back catalogue. It's really great as well to hear Matt giving his props to Hate Breeder from Children of Bodom. That album rips. If you've never checked out Hate, Crew, Death Roll, or Are You Dead Yet, please do go and check them out. If you have checked them out before, no matter where you're listening to this podcast, raise some horns in the sky for Alexi Leho. Very, very much missed. And in the future, we are going to ask about those individual influences on future episodes. But Now, it's time to talk about, with Avenged, there's always more in the melting pot and there is so much to be said for this band in this era in that while going against the grain and having that ethos and doing their own thing, they were no strangers to doing that, but also while flipping others off at the time. Just for this time period, you know, they're above it these days, but in this time period, flipping others off.
0: Going back to Warp Tour, a lot of the things we did weren't necessarily things we fully believed in. It was just more of getting a reaction out of people. Like, I'm good friends with Fat Mike now, right? But at the time, he was doing this whole campaign of, you know, like, I forget what it was called, but it was getting all these kids that were too young to vote, and they're all just ultra liberal, right? And so we started putting American flags on stuff saying, love it or die, like just to be the other band that was there that was just poking at them, Right. And the same way Fat Mike pokes at people, you know, he's always talking shit to Under Oath or whatever it is on stage. We were the same sort of antagonistic, poking the bear, poking the establishment, the same way Zach talked about in another episode, making fuck hardcore pins. You know, we were a band coming up in the hardcore scene and we made fuck hardcore pins with Love Avenge Sevenfold and the makeup and all this stuff. So it was like really just antagonistic. It wasn't well thought out. Like, this is what we believe and we're putting our stamp down. It was like, It was like, no, we're just going to really be the other side of this. So that was the attitude, right? It was just kind of us having fun.
4: Yeah, let's talk Warped Tour a little. In fact, pour one out for Warped Tour, RIP. But it was a fascinating point in rock music, the entire Warped Tour era. New trends would start on that tour. In fact, the landscape of rock culture could completely change in a summer, just down to Warped Tour, and Avenged Sevenfold were at the forefront of that movement while being at complete odds with virtually everyone else around them.
0: So we were coming from a place of influenced by you know the legends on the tour already it was bad religion it was no effects and if we got you know propaganda or good riddance thrown in there we would we big fans of it but it was those two legends that were we were being more influenced by when we got on warp tour we found out about a couple bands that blew us away and one was that first used record like we listened to that first used record and we would play that in the bus all day like we couldn't wrap our heads around like bert's voice and what they were doing, and how messy it was, but controlled, and like raw. And then there was a bunch of bands that were on the tour that were big, but they didn't do much for us, right? It wasn't like the Fallout Boys and the the Panic at the Discos were out there, and it wasn't that we didn't enjoy them as people, and also their music was fine, just wasn't what we were trying to do. And we were we were more in a different scene that was trying to blend the punk rock with the hardcore scene, which at the time was not represented on the Warped Tour and also had this flair of Metallica and Pantera, which were big boy bands, bands that could actually sell more tickets by themselves than the whole Warped Tour. And so that was a different league, right? And so we were like that kind of blend that hung out with the punkers, but we sounded more like a metal band. Our ethos were in the punk rock, but we probably should have been on OzFest. <laughs> so it was, we were kind of a mess, you know? And, and at the time I remember City of Evil coming out and, and it just not really connecting, right? It didn't sound like the used. It didn't sound like Fallout Boy. It didn't sound like the Offspring. And these were our contemporaries out there, but it also didn't sound like Disturbed. And, you know, it didn't sound like the bands that were headlining OzFest. So it was just, we were a mess.
4: Yeah, we're just going to take a little side quest at this juncture because while we are here on tracks to tell the story of the songs, there's also some really cool tales that matter to the band's history and actually one of these moments came up in my chat with Matt and that's signing to a major label. What's interesting now is if you see on Twitter or TikTok or wherever, when a band signs to a label these days, it's kind of celebrated. And I think there's some good examples of rock bands using major label money to kind of further their art in recent years, like Bring Me The Horizon or Ghost. But back then, back when it happened to Avenged Sevenfold, it was treated with real suspicion I was lucky enough to see Avenged Sevenfold while they were touring Waking the Fallen on Warped Tour in Chicago in 2003 and in telling Matt that, he told me that that date was particularly significant in the band's history because they signed to a major label in the shape of Warner Brothers, you know, you've heard of them I'm sure, but they signed to Warner Brothers and that date turned out to be pretty significant so here From Matt himself, just a cool little side story is the story of how the band signed to a major label.
0: We were going to sign with DreamWorks and Mo Austin, and we were going to do that because AFI was there. And we were very excited about being the same label as AFI. And one way that our manager was able to finagle a better deal or more money was to make it look like other labels were interested in us. And so he called up Andy Oliphant and said, can you just come out to the show and check out the band, and that way DreamWorks and other people would see that there's other people involved, so they'd up their deal. Andy came out to the show and um, just fell in love with it. He's a lifelong friend, like a guy that I still golf with to this day, and he's a just an incredible human being, but what had happened is he brought it back to Warner Brothers and told Tom Wally, who was running Warner Brothers at the time, um, and Tom had actually already heard of us and had the waking the fall on record and was already going to send possibly Craig Aronson who ended up being our A&R guy. So we kind of got signed to Warner brothers cause they came in and said, we don't care what you're getting from DreamWorks. We are going over the top to get the Seed of evil record, like the next record. Right. And so, um, that's how we got signed was that Chicago show that you're talking about, which is, uh, you know, that was a big one. And I remember Kevin Lyman did us a, a solid, which was to put us on later at night. So that because Andy was missing his flight, and he couldn't get there in time. So we were supposed to play earlier in the day, and they moved it up, just so Andy didn't waste his trip, which was cool of Kevin. So a lot of moving parts there. And it's a little bit of a, you know, behind the scenes of the music industry
4: cool story right right well back to the story of city of evil before we bring it directly to trashed and scattered and there were two ways that avenged sevenfold really went against everything that was going on we're going to put you back in the time period of 2003 and 2004 on the run-up to city of evil's arrival but we'll get to art and aesthetic and how they stood out in that way shortly but this is a music show so let's talk music we were just kind of out of New metal in 2003 the last kind of drips of that genre had kind of was just being floated out and you had a new era of rock band being really championed by the press queens of the stone age went into another gear the mars vault Muse, that kind of thing and then there was fallout boy and my chemical romance and they might have been racked next to avenge sevenfold in hot topic t-shirt bins but musically like a a million miles away and it was also in the eyes of the main mainstream or where rock music was going. This was the era of the the bands, the Strokes, the Hives, the Vines, the White Stripes, the Sums. It's a nice joke but I'm keeping it in there. Anyway, You have to further the point here that Avenged Sevenfold was so anti-Zeitgeist in so many ways. So let's put this into context at the time, how the band fit in or didn't fit in around 2003, 2004 and on the run up to City of Evil's arrival. I love
2: bands that are unlikely characters for success and all the greats are. I mean, they just do something different. Black Sabbath came out and... Nobody knew what to think of it. No one had ever done what they did. It was dark. Were they Satan worshippers? What what is this heavy metal? What are these riffs? You know, these guys are, they're scary. Or the Beatles. I mean, the Beatles have long hair. What are they doing? They're doing drugs. They're on acid. You know, one minute they're wearing suits and the next minute they're fucking Sergeant Pepper and bands like System of a Down. I mean, a bunch of Armenian guys screaming about injustices in the world. The most unlikely characters make the best art and... Honestly, Avenged is a group of misfit, unlikely characters that are creating something really unique, really different. And we always try that. I mean, there's so many boring, boring bands that are just trying to make a song for the radio or trying to get that one hit. That doesn't mean anything. Like, you get a plaque on your wall. You get the same, you know, people come to your show to hear that one song. And it's just like, is that really success or did you actually change something? Did you create something? Do people love Truly love what you do and look forward to what you're going to do next.
0: I was a huge fan of Korn. I heard them on a radio station called KNAC out here, 105.5. And I was a huge fan of Pantera. And I heard Blind on the radio. And it blew my mind. And it blew my mind because I felt it sounded kind of like Phil. But there was something funky about it and different. And then I became obsessed with that first Korn record. And then I became obsessed with the Deftones. And those two bands, I loved. And then everything that started sounding like them just got really not good to me. Like, I didn't, I didn't relate to it. I thought the whole rappers that aren't really rappers, there was nothing fresh coming to it. It just felt like this thing that, it was kind of like hardcore to me where it was like scream and then sing, scream, sing. And then it was like rap and sing and grunt and, and rap. And it just became formulaic. And I think great bands transcend genres. I guess I'm not a fan of any genre. I'm a fan of great artists, I guess. And and that's how I like to, to keep it, where it's like, oh, what do you listen to? I listen to rap. Oh, you listen to all rappers? And anything that they throw at you that's rap is, no, like you want great artists. And I think there's great artists in every genre, but new metal as a scene was never something that I related to. We could tell
2: that there was this movement happening where people were interested in what we were doing. They liked these heavy metal elements. They liked these gothic elements. They liked these punk rock elements but they didn't necessarily know that they could all work together and we didn't know any better we were just putting songs together that we loved and we'd go toward in the van and listen to I mean Skid Row and then we'd listen to Guns N' Roses then we'd listen to Pantera and then we'd listen to AFI or a hardcore band and we're putting in breakdowns and Sin's an amazing guitar player wants to throw in these solos he's trying to Add these dime bag dive bombs and these crazy Iron Maiden style duels and trying to come up with Metallica style riffs. So we're all over the board, and we also come from an Orange County hardcore scene where you had bands like 18 Visions that were playing this brutal metal, but they were cutting people's hair and wearing makeup and dressed better than you know anybody at the time. So we're like, well, that's pretty that's pretty cool. Let's let's fucking add a little bit of that. You know, we're young. We can do whatever we want. So we're on our, you know, the early Warped Tour days driving around in places like Omaha, Nebraska, going out to buy gas, wearing girl pants and eyeliner and makeup and black hair. And <laughs> like people were looking at us like, what are, what are these guys? It's not really metal. And the metal crowds kind of like, who are these guys? Why are they wearing a bunch of makeup that, you know, they look like they're from the eighties and the punk rockers are like, man, these guys are playing with, like, AFI, and but they're screaming. And you just had everyone confused, and then it worked.
4: It's hard to not punch the air then, right? And then it worked. Damn straight it worked. So the title of the record is something that perhaps I overlooked in the last link as well, because when we're talking about going against the grain, only a heavy metal band can have the title City of Evil to their album, right? There's some kind of evil, goth-friendly artists in rap. Like, if you look at someone like Little Uzi Vert, he might have something dark, but City of Evil, that's a heavy metal title. Again, kind of going against the grain. So let's get behind the title of the record before we start talking imagery and artwork.
0: I remember writing Beast in the Harlot and that line, City of Evil. And, like, Brian kept saying it, and Brian's like, that's gotta be the name of the record, like city of evil. Like what's a city of evil. And we were kind of laughing about it and throwing it around. And we're like, yeah, it's sharp. It's poignant city of evil. And so that just became the title, but there was no concept before that we're going to write for an album called city of evil. Just kind of came out of the beast and the harlot lyrics. And then this picture that was being painted with that song. It was who we are,
3: you know, it was like, you know, there's a lot of sensationalized press that happened at that time we were we were certainly no motley crew i guess um that was that was kind of next level but i've had those arguments within the band that that we weren't those guys jimmy some of jimmy's exploits just and you know, i've seen all all the crew stuff i've heard the horror stories uh the amazing stories jimmy was definitely all of those and then some. He was, Jesus Christ! What he was a freak of nature musically, um, socially. <laughs> he was he was one gigantic fucking experiment. Um, God was, uh, thankfully for us, working on and and set right next to us. But we were fucking nuts, and um, and so and we and we knew it, you know. But the thing was, we were scared when all the jokes that we made when we were hammered doing all this press and in the UK for the first time it came out and we're like, well, we want to be taken serious. We don't want to be known as this band and okay, we're going to take it serious. And then we get in a fight at the fucking bar at the end of the night. And it's like, well, guys, we're not, we're not helping our cause. We're not helping our fucking cause, you know, but we wanted to be taken serious because our art was serious, but we were, we were fucking madmen at that time. Um, We were best friends that had been best friends getting in trouble together. Like big trouble, big trouble together uh, before we were writing music together. Um, Jimmy was banned from everybody's houses. I wasn't allowed to go to certain people's houses. It was ugly. <laughs> it was fucking ugly. But yeah, so City of Evil was just like, that's, that's us wherever we go. It tends to turn into a little bit of a city of evil. And it just really resonated that our fans could go make their own city of evil wherever they wanted to and it was certainly going to be us and our family our family of fans uh, a city of evil whatever town we came into
4: the city of evil being wherever any of us are listening to the record is a really badass concept to my mind but um speaking of the mind i want to play a quick game with you so clear your mind not to sound too much like a guided meditation but clear your mind for a second What does a city of evil look like to you? Get in the Death Bats Club Discord and let us know, and maybe we'll read a few answers out in the next episode. But I want to know, what does a city of evil look like to you? Because before there was artwork, and when there was only the skeleton of songs, when this was coming together, City of Evil, the concept for this record, there could only be what was in the guy's mind as far as what does a city of evil look like? So... Johnny absolutely nails what the mindset was within the band when they were coming up with the image for City of Evil. Stick around for it. It's unbelievable. But first, here's Sin with what a City of Evil looks like to him. I like
3: a good fucking dive bar with a lot of shots, a lot of hard alcohol, good hard alcohol, Marlboro Reds, and a fight that doesn't leave us in the hospital at the end of it all. Because there's nothing better than a fucking solid high five with your friends when uh, you got a couple of bloody noses, uh, maybe somebody's got a chipped tooth, nobody's in jail, nobody's dead, nobody's stabbed, um, but you beat the fuck out of a couple of, of people that, uh, that shouldn't have opened their fucking mouths. And, and we rarely started these things, I promise you that. We rarely started these issues, but, but we were a very capable band of, of finishing the issue.
1: I think a city of evil to me will always represent what we were talking about at the time. And that really was like a Sodom and Gomorrah, like a, like a real just fire and fucking everywhere. Just like fire, brimstone, orgies, debauchery, end of the world type of shit with just a bunch of savages. And I think that that's like kind of a city of evil. Like it's just it, it, it's almost fun to look at it, you know? It's like, you know it's sad and it's fucked up, but it's also like, it's kind of fucking cool. They're just going for it. And I like that.
4: I just love how Johnny describes that. But now we come to the second part of how Avenged Sevenfold would go against the grain in a big, big way. And that is to bring back old school, heavy metal imagery. And this is such a massive deal for our entire culture because when you look at, in the mainstream, logos from justin bieber to kanye west have embraced heavy metal style artwork when you see a-listers wearing metal t-shirts today it's no big surprise but that look was so dead at this point in time. And it is my opinion, not necessarily that of the band, these are my words, but it is my opinion that Avenged Sevenfold were at least partially responsible for that look returning in a big way. And also, when you think about all of those bands that we were talking about earlier that were the big thing at the time... Think about their album covers, so different to where Avenged Sevenfold were going, and Avenged were hell-bent on drawing influences from the best imagery from metal and punk's past to bring it smashing into the present. The death bat had kind of already laid the foundations for that massive statement, as you're about to hear from Sinister Gates, but this was about creating Big, fantastical. Put it on a poster and stick it on your wall. Brilliance and making what was old new again in their own unique way.
3: It was super important to have, have roots. Um, they come from all different places. Not going to say that some of the stuff wasn't manufactured. There, there's a lot of thought behind it. Some is a, some when your your best days. But any artist tell that tells you all of their days. Of creativity are original, are flat out liars. <laughs> and um I don't care about them because my favorites have already lifted the skirt a little bit <laughs> on those things. I don't know if you can say that in 2022. Um, but cancel me if you wish. I dare you to try. I'm tired, I'm sleepy. <laughs> Go to bed for a little bit. Um, but I feel like, you know, the the Beatles like and it's, it's not an original, again, this is it's funny enough, it's not an original saying. John Lennon said, real artists don't borrow, they steal. And it's 110% true. You, you do your best to make it your own, but you can't escape it even if you try. So why not figure out, spend a little bit of time figuring out what makes bands great. Misfits had an unbelievable logo. It was absolutely inspired 100% by the Misfits to have an iconic logo. And... It took us a while to figure it out. Again, there's always stuff in the water. For the, for the lucky ones um, like us, there's always been stuff in the water. Our some of our best friends were great artists. Our best friend Michael Montague, he's passed away since then. Um, we were hanging out with him every single day, drinking, getting arrested, all the all the shit, underage drinking at bars. Um, and I'd have an acoustic guitar at his house and he'd, he'd be drawing, and I'd be jamming, and then we'd start drinking, and then we go... And it just, we never thought about it, except for the fact that we needed this. We didn't go source a bunch of people. We had our guy, just draw it up, and he fucking nailed it on the first iteration. It was uh, first or second, or whatever it might be, or, but I'm pretty sure that what he drew first uh, was our death bat, and, and that's just an incredible luck, you know? But having the vision, knowing where you're trying to go with things definitely definitely helps. And then, um, you know, a great network of human beings is helpful, to say the least.
4: Which brings us nicely to the album cover itself, City of Evil. I think I'm right in saying this is iconic. I don't feel like I'm just pandering to the masses here. I'm dead serious. I think it's an iconic album cover. And what we're discovering as we get into the inner intricacies of how Avenged Sevenfold work is Zaki Vengeance is really, really involved in the album cover process. So here he is talking about what led to this iconic, yeah, I said it, Album cover.
2: When I started really loving bands, I would get their album covers and I would sit there, the CD covers, and I would just look at them and I would open them up and look at the artwork and read everything. I was always so inspired. Sometimes I'd buy records just because the artwork, because you never got a chance to hear the band. You couldn't just go on Spotify and listen, you know, and decide if you liked them. It was like, you go to the record store, this artwork is awesome, it speaks to me. Like, let's give this a chance. I mean, all those heavy metal bands like At The Gates and Children of Bodom, I was always like, yeah, what is this? Like, this is awesome. I can't wait to check this out. I'd pick up, uh, I mean, Iron Maiden albums, and I was kind of like, well, this is like, isn't what I expect. It's kind of like more rock and roll metal, and, you know, they look like they might just be like a thrash band. You just didn't know what you were going to get. So I've always thought the aesthetic of the art is such an important part of, you know, heavy music. It's just capturing wherever we are at that time. However you're feeling. You know, with Nightmare, it was really important to me to capture the darkness that we were all feeling. And with the White Album, it's a little more fun, a little more comic booky. We are all just having a blast, you know, on cloud nine at the top of our game. Young kids that have found success. Uh, and with stuff like the stage, you got a lot of, crazy shit happening in the world, and, you know, we came up with the title City of Evil by, like I said, just being at that place in our life, where we come from, where were we recording these albums, you know, Los Angeles, Hollywood, you know, these big, dirty cities, and then we were, you know, fresh off of our first tour in the UK and London, you see these big cities, we go out drinking at the bars, we're we're hanging out, getting into trouble, and we're, finishing the album, mixing with Andy Wallace in New York City. So here we are, um, early 20-year-old guys, basically a blank check credit card from the record label in New York City for a month to record this album with Andy Wallace. And and meanwhile, this whole City of Evil persona was just what we were living. And for the art, I was inspired by all of us. Where I mean, Iron Maiden's like, what metal bands have classic covers like Megadeth, Metallica, Iron Maiden. Um, I mean, really every metal band, they they wore it on their sleeve. Their artwork was just awesome. I and mean, We wanted to do that. And I don't think it's necessarily our greatest album cover, but it was our 23, 24-year-old selves attempt at making this fucking larger-than-life metal album. And I, maybe we didn't quite pull it off, but there's something I think that resonates with people. I think people love the fact that we were trying to, um, you know, mimic these big huge rock and metal gods and we weren't on that, you know, level yet. And here we are with this attempt of a classic album cover that is ultimately has become
4: a classic, sometimes mocked album cover. Something that is truly fascinating about the artwork for City of Evil is 17 years after the album's release, when we look at Web 3 and the metaverse and the enormous ambition that Avenged Sevenfold have in that space, City of Evil and its artwork and its concept is actually getting the opportunity to be reinvented all of these years later, which is pretty exciting from where I'm sat.
0: Everything comes full circle at some point. If you look at what we're building in the sandbox land, I mean, it's a lot of it's based around city of evil, right? It's um, this Western town that says city of evil, and it's got all these, it's almost like you're being able to build the city of evil. You're being able to build a place to explore and to take to the next level where before you just had music and you had words. Now you have a way to engage and these little kind of pinpoints in our career that were important are going to be things that we tie back into while still trying to move forward. And city of evil is something that obviously a lot of people that we work with have related to the band, right? So when they want to build a casino, they go right to Backcountry, And when they want to build a Western town, they go to strength of the world, maybe gunslinger, but strength of the world. So that record's obviously important to us. And it's going to be very interesting to see how we, are able to engage with it in 2022 and beyond because it obviously was written in a different point in time but it was very fantastical (laughs) you know there's all these things that were very big ideas that now we can really build on
4: and so we arrive at trashed and scattered itself as discussed earlier it was the second song to be released from city of evil though not as a single but this song, to my mind, is something of an underrated classic. It's fast and hard, got a breakdown to die for. There's Euro Shred, that classic Guns N' Roses hard rock swagger, except fueled by a band that are grown up on skate punk and a complex structure by any band's standards. Damn, right? Trashed and scattered, let's get into it. Trashed
0: and scattered again, I'm feeling so low. You're to breath by fucking with me. Blood is so cold. My destination always
2: unknown. i my way you Trashed and Scattered really showcases everything that we wanted to showcase at that time. We wanted to show fast heavy metal. We wanted to showcase uh, you know, punk rock drum beats. We wanted to showcase tons of backing vocal harmonies and breakdowns, a little bit of you know, Faith No uh, More-esque, Patton-y melodies towards the end of the song. A little bit of that raw dirtiness from bands like Guns N' Roses that we loved. Uh, It's like a mix of Metallica, Iron Maiden, At the Gates, Guns N' Roses, Faith No More, which is all the stuff that we were listening to at the time. And it's all thrown into one. Like, we loved so much music, we couldn't contain ourselves. We had so many ideas, we put it all together. And listening back, it's like, man we were out of our minds to to put all this together and try and squeeze it into a song. But I'm so glad that we did because it captured where we were at the time. And it's, you know, at this point, it'd be hard to write a song like that because we're so capable of pulling pieces out of songs. Hey, how do we not ch- choke this song? How do we not, you know, bury it or suffocate it with a bunch of layers and let it open up and breathe? You know, we just have different philosophies now. But then it was just like fucking Pile it on, motherfucker. This is going to be awesome. And that's what we did. And so it's such a fun song to listen to. And I I think that's why people really caught on to Avenge Sevenfold during the City of Evil days, because it's fun. It's over the top. It's just complete madness and mayhem, unlike any other band at the time.
1: Wake in the Fall, we started to put layers on. City of Evil is when we put way too many layers on. I mean, like you should have seen those Pro Tools. Those Pro Tools fucking track listings are they're a hundred deep at easily for the, for this song. And, um, it's just insane. Like you get, you know, all right, here's the drums. It's got fucking a million things going on there. Here's the bass. All right. It's finally figuring it out. All right. Now we're going to throw rhythm guitars on it on each side. And then we're going to put, Five more leads on it. Okay, we still haven't hit the vocals yet. Oh, yeah, we're going to do, like, six harmonies on this part, and we're going to do that. And it's like, there's layers upon layers on this entire album, and Trash and Scattered is, is certainly no exception to that. All the parts, I mean, they came I'm pretty sure they came from, like, five different songs and finally just came together. We're like, okay, this one actually does kind of work here. This one we can actually get to, but we need this part here to get there. And then at the end yeah we're just gonna throw that at the end. It's an album as a whole is is obviously the a big jump and trash and scattered yeah I think it I think it showed the madness of of what we were doing like it's just it's all over the place yet somehow we made it work and it ends up cohesive. I was just listening to it, man, and it's so youthful, like it has so much energy, and I'm like, wow, I remember that. I wanna remember what that felt like
0: <laughs> on this song, I had this. They were basically punk riffs. The the riff you hear going underneath the whole time is just a, purely a punk riff. This song to me is the most incohesive song on the record. It's almost like we had a million parts, and we didn't know where to put them. And like, didn't there was no like, if you listen to Beast in the Harlot or MIA or. The Wicked End, there's like this vibe to each of them. This one was like, we have like 30 parts. Let's just, how many things can we stack on top of each other and just make it? But it it also becomes one of these exciting moments on the record because there is no real good structure. There's a million and one background vocals going at all moments. Just the whole thing's a mess to me, like a beautiful mess. So I think trash and scattered is one of those perfect examples of what city of evil is. It's an incohesive rambling, like piece of music that fits perfectly in this record because the whole record's chaos. It wasn't thought out. It was just, let's just keep writing parts that we like on top of each other and then never going back because that's too, that gets done all the time, right? Like it's going back to the verse here is would be the smart thing, but let's not do that. (laughs) And so I think, um, Songs like these are fun because they really are just a bunch of parts that you find out a cohesive way to jumble them all together. And then, and, and this is why like there's a bunch of kind of out of context quotes from Brian about city of evil, where he says city of evil was more like polishing turds, a bunch of parts that are not strong enough to live on their own as full songs, but together they make this experience. They make this flying experience that is very dramatic and random and fun but you would never take one of those things and go like that's going to be a hit that's going to be a huge song like the chorus of backcountry or some of these bigger things seize the day those are songs that you write around because they're so strong and if you were to go a million places with it you're almost like doing a disservice to those parts trash and scattered doesn't have any of those parts trash and scattered is a bunch of turd polishing, as Brian will call it. And it's a bunch of like, let's throw more vocal harmonies on it. Let's do this. It's going to be exciting. Like, look over here. The part's not that great, but look over here. This is shiny. This is cool. And I think Trash and Scattered, it benefits from us going through it with a fine tooth comb and really trying to polish it up to make it sound glossy.
4: Now, I'm not sure if it's common knowledge, but Matt just pointed out in that last part that he plays guitar and that he did a bunch of writing on this song, and I didn't know that Matt played guitar, so throw your eggs at me if you must, but I didn't know that, so I thought I would ask Zaki what Matt is like as a guitar player, and it turns out there was something else about his level of musicianship that I didn't know, so take it away, Zaki. M Shadows as a guitarist
2: is, it's fun to watch. It, it, the way he holds the guitar pick the way he strums it's just like watching 13 year old matt in in high school when he was when we were playing in bands uh he still plays the same way uh it's kind of like just a straight up like downstroke kind of punk rocky guitarist that has you know power chords and, and he hasn't had to put in the time and practice that me and sin have <laughs> so he still busts out the guitar plays the power chords uh it's cool it's cool to watch uh he was playing guitar ever since I was you know and I think a lot of people probably don't know that he's actually a pretty good piano player too.
4: M Shadows tinkler of ivories I did not know that I didn't know he was a piano player but this is only the second episode of Tracks so my name's Bees thanks for being with us again and this is going to happen every single episode we bring in Sinister Gates to really nail down the music theory of the song in question so Weirdly, I'm going to throw to myself here. Here's myself, Bees, in conversation with Sinister Gates, talking the music theory of Trashed and Scattered. I I will get to structure, because that seems to be the big thing that everyone has spoken about thus far on the interview process. But I wanted to start with the opening flurry. (laughs) Is that influenced by any band or composer? Because it's really grandiose. It's got quite a classical feel to it.
3: Man, it's such a melting pot of shit on that record. It's just fucking crazy. I mean, we were listening to a lot of Sonata Artica. Matt's a huge fan of Children of Bodom, the late and great Lexi. And as just, you know, I, I was always a classical guy. My dad always had Bach and jazz. And Bach was his classical North Star. Um... So it just kind of makes made sense, you know? We just put a lot of crazy neoclassical shit in and around the record whenever we
4: could. Can I ask a little bit about Bach as well? Because Bach is the one that Cliff Burton goes to. So what is it about Bach that makes it kind of um, associated for metal and particularly that kind of long-structured, like, big-songs metal?
3: You know, there's, there's so many things to describe Bach, and this is probably the worst way to describe him so apologies to everybody um (laughs) it's good start but he's exactly here coming coming with the, the sound bites you know basically he's the most approachable it's super arpeggiated it's super uh you know the chord changes aren't extreme per se the chord changes within the chord changes but it does modulate a lot but when it goes to another key it's obviously in that key as opposed to a lot of jazz based stuff, which borrows, um, a lot from, uh, the, the romantic period, but that's not to say that Bach isn't the hardest working dude in the business. There's so much shit going on at all times. I mean, he's, he's the father of counterpoint counterpoint consists of, you know, four basic principles, I believe. Um, haven't again, not studied up on this in in quite some time. So don't, don't lynch me people. Uh, what's happening on top, what's happening on the bottom, and then, and that's the melody and the bass, and then the harmony is in between, and with all that kind of stuff, I mean, you can just do this vast array of oceanic movement, you know, where, you know, there's calm ab- above the storm, you know, and, um, it's, or it's uh, beautiful beneath the sea, uh, and, and then the the top texture is just absolutely chaotic, and um, that was Bach, but uh, but basically I think it feels like he's not working as hard as he's working, and it feels like harmonically he's not um, as advanced or out as maybe he he seems to be. He's just, you know, he's the godfather of classical music to, to most people, and I always say this about the Beatles too. You just, it's hard to tell how hard they're working. the The spirit, the movement, the energy... Um, And the melody is just so palatable, right? It's just so easy to latch on. But when you dissect this stuff, it's like, what, how the fuck did they come up with this? What were they doing? How do I not know these chords? How do I not know these chord changes? Like, what the fuck is wrong with these guys? Uh, Bach was that.
4: And that definitely sounds like City of Evil as well, so I can see the the palatable in terms of the the sheer volume of shit going on. So let's talk structure. What is it about the structure of this song in particular? Because City of Evil is an album chocked full of a lot going on, but Trashed and Scattered is is so full on in terms of the twists and turns. It's like being on the world's best roller coaster.
3: <laughs> the world's best, huh? More- World's most dangerous roller coaster, maybe.
4: Yeah, that's more like yeah. it. <laughs>
3: um, no, it's uh. To be honest, I wish I could say that there was a rhyme or a reason to anything that we were doing when we were fucking twenty-four and twenty-three <laughs> years old, but there there really wasn't. Um, we liked progressive music, but we loved punk rock. You know, I've been um, re-listening to a lot of Metallica lately. My my four-year-old son is obsessed, and I, I to be honest. I'm not a deep tracks Metallica guy. I, I respect and, and worship them for as the leader in in the industry. I, I get it. They're the industry standard, and that's possibly a disparaging comment upon them. They're unbelievable. but there's a metal way to play and then there's a punk rock to you know funny enough, I, I bring up Metallica, but they're like the punk rock version of metal, and they can get into that slippery no effects like fast. Uh, punk rock, you know, new school punk rock grooves and stuff, but that was that was us. So when we played metal, it was it was essentially punk rock. So you bring this sort of punk rock chaos to it, even in structure, it just had to feel good. And we didn't finish writing until it made perfect sense to us until there's a seamless thing. And sometimes you skip a chorus where there needs to be a chorus for all intents and purposes. Sometimes you skip a verse, sometimes you add a verse. I think that's what we did. Um, we added an extra verse into a chorus after funny enough, it's, it's a chaotic sort of thing. I think we skipped the second chorus on that and added the third chorus and a pop part where you do like almost a, a breakdown of the verse into a third chorus. But I don't think we had a second chorus, so it doesn't quite make sense. But because our bridge is so adventurous, and I'm a big fan of the bridges and the outros on this record, and not so much of the choruses. And this is a quintessential song that I feel strongly about that. I'm not a huge fan of the chorus. I don't think it's a bad chorus. I'll play it. I won't play Beast and the Harlot. I'll play Trash and Scattered. Uh, But it's not my favorite. It's kind of a phoned-in rock chorus to me. But (laughs) the rest of the song, I know, I know. (laughs) But the rest of the song to me, and I'm going to sound like an asshole, I think is amazing. Like I said, I haven't heard it in years. I think the song is amazing. It's my favorite outro on the whole entire record. City, make my body ache. I just fucking lose my mind. I remember when we wrote it, you know, and and just like the chills that I got, you know, when those things come out and you hear Matt sing them because they can be in your head. They can sound a certain way, you know, and so you uh, ideate on these things, and as a band, we're smart enough to know that we want it sounding good out of the singer's mouth. It's not what's up here that matters. It matters. The chemistry of the band matters, and that's just a part where I just think that Matt manifested greatness with this cool melody and then the texture of hit you know that sort of Mike patton uh whininess uh and then the background vocals the call and answer background vocals and shit at the end.
4: The lead guitars on this song are so full on. It's really easy to miss that in the chorus, like, you are just fucking ripping. Like, because there's so much going on, like, if you... Listeners, if you focus in on the lead guitar and the chorus of this, it is just fucking shredding. Was this this a real statement of intent, the young Sinister Gates? Because it feels like this was the record where they put you in the pantheons with the greats. And that's that's like a that's a big thing, man.
3: Well, if everybody felt the same way as as what you've just said, <laughs> then then we're then we're good. But um <laughs> you know, I still still got some work to do, but I I really appreciate that. Um I was very proud of this record. This is the record um where I felt we all spoke truest. And yeah, you know, funny enough, as proud as I am of all the different things, if there was a formula, it was to do uh, you know an eighth note meandering but uber melodic solo r- vibe uh over each chorus. <laughs> and we and we definitely exploited um exploited that concept quite a bit. Um the worst case scenario is Beast and the Harlot. You know, maybe maybe today's the the day that I just I'll never speak that name again. Maybe I don't ever say "Beast in the Harlot" again. <laughs> I'm gonna try. I'm gonna see how many. I'm gonna see how many years and, and lifetimes I can go without saying that name.
4: Just so you know, you put yourself right in the firing line here, mate.
3: If we play that song again, it's because they've taken something hostage of mine, <laughs> or they have the deepest dirt. <laughs> if, if you
4: I, ever want to see your wife and children again, Beast in the Harlot. If
3: I'm playing that song, know that that's a silent cry for help. But yeah, so uh trash and scattered is is a, a better slightly better version uh, of that formula so yeah i mean it's it's classic slash if you want to like put a spotlight on the ripoff i forget what the that velvet revolver record i believe it's their debut record is am i not
4: yeah contraband what? is that what it's Con- contraband yes like that? yes yeah. great
3: great memory you'll you'll hear city of evil choruses all over that shit <laughs>
4: I love having that chat. So more music theory with Sinister Gates next month. And don't forget, at the end of this episode, there's actually going to be some letters from the DBC, from the Death Bats Club Discord, answered by a couple of the guys. So stick around for that. But next up, I think one of the key components of City of Evil and certainly of Trashed and Scattered is that dual lead guitar sound. When Zaki and Sin lock in together, it was kind of coming together on the record before. This waking the fallen, but um, yeah, this was a moment where it really came into its own.
3: I feel it was damn close on on waking. This is definitely where where I feel like we were firing on all cylinders. They're just it felt like there was something special in the water at that time, and and a bunch of shit happened after. It resonated with a a lot a lot of people, um and it made sense to us that a record like that would resonate because it's a very progressive record. You could say, oh sure, of course, backcountry. But that type of stuff wasn't being played. And it certainly wasn't debuted like number one on TRL. We knew that Waking... We believed Waking the Fallen was a great record. We loved that record. Loved that record. That was the first time it felt like, you know, here's our real talents and of, of chemistry and everything coming out. But firing, as far as firing on all cylinders, it, it was definitely City of Evil. And it's a progressive record, but we just felt that this one was going to resonate uh, on, a, on a much at a much bigger scale, and it did.
4: And so to just address a couple of factors within the ranks of Avenged Sevenfold that feel pretty poignant at this point in time, we're going to, in a future episode, talk to Matt about his voice and his vocal change between Waking the Fallen and City of Evil, and we're about to give an unsung hero his flowers in the next link. But first, time to talk a little bit about Sinister Gates, because... From record to record, he had a real growing influence. As we covered on the last episode, he came in at the very end of sounding the seventh trumpet. We'll get to Waking the Fallen on a future episode, but this was a point in time where his influence was at its biggest point on Avenged Sevenfold's music and in my opinion it was the moment that the wider world stopped and looked up and took notice of the fact that Sinister Gates is one of the best guitar players of his generation.
2: You look at that album and it's me and Matt at the very tail end of our power chord punk rock adventure trying to incorporate some dueling guitar parts and then you have Sinister writing these really difficult guitar lines that I was forced to learn and these duels and backcountry and, and trashed and scattered. And so I'm having to improve my playing. And when all I want to do is play power chords behind simple dual melodies, which was all I was capable of at the time. And you have the rev playing punk beats, but you know, wanting to show off his double bass skills. Cause he's a ripping metal drummer and you have all of us kind of transforming from kids into more uh, mature musicians. And that's a lot of Sinister's uh, involvement and his his talent. And he's starting to sneak in some of these big chords, you know, shit that's hard to play. Stuff that I'd never dream of because I'm just power chords and riffs all day long. And then you get M. -M Shadow's excited about these huge Western opuses like uh, Sidewinder and... So it's really just a transition from being punk rock, heavy metal, riff playing kids to more real songwriting.
3: Everybody was developing their craft. Zachy, after Waking, developing his craft, being able to play those little neoclassical ar- arpeggios uh, uh, or riffs, licks, whatever you want to call them, and not just following kind of my lead from Waking. He's a riff master on Waking, but then starting to write some of those things himself, just these crazy neoclassical things coming in. I'm like, damn, dude, that's that's cool shit. But I, I felt such a great sense of pride with everybody. Johnny's ability to now write bass lines. He was in the other room with Fred Archambault um, writing really amazing bass lines, whether they were pedal tones. Um, we had already always followed the chord. So if it was a C, a D, and a G, you play a C, a D, and a G on a bass. But you if you pedaled... Maybe if you're in G major or something, you go do, 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 and it goes to a C and you keep that G in the bass or whatever. And Fred Archambault liked to call it the Motley Crue tricks, the Nikki Six tricks, you know, but it's kind of, um, that goes back to counterpoint. It's those pedal tones, right? While things, things are going up top, this stays the same. and it, um, Or inversions of chords, you know, using a different note of a chord besides the root note. Uh, Johnny was beginning to do all those different expressions and it just adds such depth. And if you do it with a good ear, um, and, and Johnny is all ear. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, but he started to use his ear uh, at that time. And he's got a great fucking ear and can write incredible bass, bass lines. And that set him off to write some of the most epic bass lines I've ever fucking heard. I think he's the greatest creative bassist on the face of the planet. I've tried to beat him out, play things that I had in mind. I'm going to play bass on this song. It means a lot to me. Gonna do this, whether it was so far away or different things later. Later on, was I wanted to do tonight? The world dies. Uh, I wanted to make that song great because it wasn't gonna be a standout song. sort of like little Alice in Chainsy sort of thing. But I, I love that song, and I wanted to make it super special. And and Johnny just had this line that, I mean, everybody. It wasn't just me that said, "Go play this." Back in the day, he plays everything now. But back in the day, like no, 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 Brian, Brian's gonna fucking work on that for you. <laughs> and it got to a certain point, and was you know halfway during Waking the Fallen, uh, and at the at City of Evil, that he he just took off, and his facial expressions, facial expressions, yeah, we're gonna call it that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Far far exceeded anything that I I could do. He was thinking like a bassist, um, and an artist at, at the same time, and that was great. So. Anyway, not to meander on about all that stuff, but it was really, truly everybody firing on all cylinders for the first time.
4: I can't say it better than Sin just did, but it is time to talk a little Johnny Christ because when people talk about Avenged in this period, there's a lot of talk about the duelling lead guitars and the riff after riff after riff approach and it goes without saying that anybody who knows what they're talking about speaks with the highest praise of the songwriting, the chops, the fills, the rhythms, the everything when it comes to Jimmy the Rev Sullivan, but there has to be a foundation for all of that, something gluing it all together and that is johnny christ's base and that is a herculean task that he manages with such aplomb and it was great on waking the fallen but it, it really came together on all things city of evil so let's give it up for the one and only johnny christ
1: Yeah, I mean, I was definitely more comfortable in my own skin around the guys at that point and more comfortable with my skill level. Uh, Waking the Fallen, I was still, uh, you know, I was still treading water, really. I wasn't stepping out as a bass player very much. I mean, I was thrown right into the fire, like I said, right right with Waking the Fallen. I did two, a two-week tour with the band, and then... They got off the road and started writing Waking the Fallen. So I was thrown right into it. And uh, I didn't have a lot of time to catch up on it. Um, Not an excuse. I just wasn't there at my playing ability yet. Coming in as a bass player on, on City of Evil as a whole, it was really a time when I can really start to figure out where the bass is going to fit in this band. Um, not overplaying or trying to show off. It's that's not. It's not going to work in this band. You already got sinister fucking Gates in the band. It's not going to happen. So you know, you find your role and you start you start figuring it out. The record was being written. I did not do very much writing at the time. I, I took care of my bass parts, and that was basically. And that was that was what I was I was there to do. And worked. I worked closely with Fred Archibald on this one. I mean, we had our separate bass room in the studio that we were doing this in. It was just me and Fred. And I remember, you know, he was like a little apprehensive because of "Waking the Fall," and I was struggling. He's like, "Are you going to be ready for this?" And I was like, "Yeah, I'm I'm ready." And we got in, and we just started knocking stuff out together. And uh, you know, we'd show the guys after we're done, I'm like, "How do you like this bass part?" You know, stuff like uh, "Back Country," the soft parts of "Back Country." I hadn't really broken out into any kind of melodic bass parts on "Waking the Fall," and there was none of that. So, getting in, getting more melodic with my bass parts in "City of Evil," I think. Uh, was very important as for my uh, for my taste. Um, actually, having a colorful base to complement what the guys were writing, I thought was very important at the time. It's become natural. That role, it's it's ingrained in me now, and I understand it um, from as early as City of Evil, and each time it changes. You know, it's that role played. You know, a little bit flashier on on City of Evil when we went, but by the time we got to Hail to the King, it wasn't. It's like that's those are two different albums. Those are two different sounds. Those are two different. I mean, they're different songs. They're different eras in our life it's not going to be the same fucking sound, you know? It's There's going to be a new role. It's dependent upon the album or the song, in my opinion, of where the bass plays its role, and I think that's true in every band, but for I, I could speak more for myself in our band. I think that City of Evil, it was the time for everyone to um, express themselves a little bit more melodically. It was our first time doing that, and I followed in suit. I wanted to make sure that it that was there, but... There's so much you don't want, you, you can't compete with all these notes happening at the same time. So, you know, we'll get into like the end of Trash and Scattered where it goes into this uh, part and I do the, the, the dropping bass lines that kind of slide down on it. And it's kind of, it's, it's almost following Matt's vocal line. You know, there's, there's little tricks like that where you could find and then, but then at the same time, when there's all these layers on top of, of duels and solos, there's got to be something underneath that's just holding it down and getting that connection from the leads to the drums. And playing with Jimmy, God, just playing off of him taught me so much. Like, that's another thing about going back to where you find your spot. When I mean, The drums are going crazy like that too. Where, where, where are you falling? I have to work off of his hits you know, a lot of the times, uh, where he's doing a fill here. So I'm going to stay here or why don't we just like do that together? Like you go, you go down this snare roll and I'm just going to do an octave higher and follow that snare roll. And we'd, we'd play off of each other like that a lot. And especially during, during this, these were the eras where we sound checked and like, like really got into sound checking. And when we did we'd jam and stuff and and something might come up, and then I'm like, oh, we just played off of each other pretty well there, Jimmy, just drums and bass stuff. I so like, I'm going to try to remember that. And then you, you just try to incorporate shit. I mean, that's what it is at the end of the day. He was such an amazing musician and songwriter. And, he, and I mean, before he was even writing songs, he was writing drum parts. And those drum parts are, are, are masterpieces in my mind. Jimmy moved in with me while we were writing City of Evil. We'd be in our rooms, separate, playing our instruments, and then he'd be like, "Listening, he's all, you're like, you're working on this right now." I'm like, "Yeah, dude, I've been working on it like every day. <laughs> while you guys are writing the record, you're sending me the demos. I'm figuring out my bass parts, and I was doing that every day and getting better at the craft and honing in. I mean, it was it was a more intricate record too. It's, it's more advanced than Waking the Fallen, in my opinion. All those things coming together." I definitely feel like it was like, okay, this is my shot. Let's see what I can do. Let's go for it. And I really, really put everything that I could into uh, finding my role and what I was supposed to do on City of Evil.
4: Yes indeed, props to Johnny Christ, but let's get back to Trashed and Scattered, and one of the more unique things about it when it comes to the framework of City of Evil, and that is the lyrical narrative. So, in the interview process for this episode, when talking to M Shadows about the lyrics, he was pointing out that virtually every song on City of Evil The lyrics are fantasy-driven, with two exceptions. One is obviously trashed and scattered, because I'm about to talk about it. But can you guess the other? I'll give you two seconds. All right, pat yourself on the back and give yourself a gold medal if you said Blinded in Chains. Yeah, Blinded in Chains and Trashed and Scattered, the only two songs that are not fantasy-driven. So what is Trashed and Scattered about? This song was about firing back at people who'd had their sights locked on the band at this point in time, and that group of people are the media.
0: Labour! was very much based on the previous records tug and pull with the press right like it was like the 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 live shows and the record before and what we were trying to do it it ruffled a lot of feathers for some reason you know people journalists they like to it's either a great review or it's a one you know it's like either this is the greatest thing ever or it's the worst thing ever and we just were kind of responding to that which a you know 22 year old kids would do 23 year old kids would do and um, it's interesting to see that when these records come out, even City of Evil, how much divide there was between the so-called press at that time. And then it be- goes on to become, you know, within 15 short years, one of the top 100 metal records of all time, which is, you know, obviously that's a, a an opinion by somebody, but it's very interesting to see how quickly the tides change, right? Our biggest problem was that I feel like once
3: they felt like they found a new motley crew that that was what they wanted to hang their hat on and I was fine with that as long as you balance that out with the music and what type of a unique type of band we are it sounds disparaging the words that I want to use but just to frame it a lot of bands talk about how or even disparage that they don't want to be a music geek because it's going to water it I never wanted to do this to be a good guitar player. I could care less about being a good guitar player. That doesn't offend me, just because you don't want it. But it shouldn't offend others that I want to add terms like depth of musicality. It's not to say these bands aren't at, on the deepest, the deepest level of resonance with a global audience. That's insane. You can't manufacture that. That shit's magic. I get it but we're musicians. Some of us are fucking long life, lifetime aspiring musicians. Um, and I'm very proud that we have blended this really focused sense of songwriting with this really focused sense of musicality and depth.
0: You almost play into it and and, and you get smart at some point and then you realize that things are going to pull from, right? Like you could be having a, an hour long really good conversation and then you say something in jest or you're joking around or or you or you say something a little bit off the wall and you know that that is going to be the headline it's going to be the front of the the magazine and then and you also find out that most people aren't going to read the article and they're just going to make an opinion on you and so it goes through phases so at that time I would say that it was almost like a running joke of how much ridiculous shit we could say that would get printed And then sometimes we do interviews drunk, which you shouldn't do. And you just say whatever you really feel. And then you can't have that really printed because there's no conversation there. So we went through a lot of growing pains and learning just like anyone else would. But back to City of Evil, I think it was a a learning process. It was shocking. I don't think most of those articles would be great for my parents to be reading in their home. You know, like, just like, oh, Matt's on a cover. Like, let's read it. And then it's like the the worst things that me and the Rev are coming up with or – just talking about band stories that shouldn't like no parent should ever have to hear and then and then also you it's also funny because you have a bunch of people that are holding our feet to the fire in 2022 for things we said and like oh they believe this or they believe that even though you can refute it for years and years and years they'll still go back to well look at this and it's and so we just kind of you block it all out at some point it's it's just it's nothing you know ah! Metropolis takes its toll.
3: If I had any inkling that somebody wanted to extract something from what I was saying and didn't care for everything that I was saying and just wanted to extract a portion of it and then frame it their way, you'd you'd see what feels like a hangover in my brain coming out of my mouth. It would be, uh, it would be fucked up, you know, because I would be in defense mode. Um, it doesn't feel good. And, and then when everybody's kind of coming at you like that, and they want the, the dirt and they want this. Yeah, you're just like, fuck off. We're, we're a band and we spend, we spend a lot of time and a lot of effort. And then we've made a lot of sacrifices to execute our vision to the fullest of our ability.
4: And if it feels a little strange that the media are such a big talking point at this point in time, I think it's worth going back to this era, 2003, 2004, and thinking about how much influence the media had over someone's image. So now... All you have to do is go and follow someone on social media and they can tell you directly who they are. You get a better sense of any kind of narrative, anything that a band member has to say, they can say to you directly. Back then, it was all kind of done through the media's filter. And so it's kind of interesting that the media used to be in control of your image, but now that's a thing of the past.
0: Being the age I am now, I try to, I don't hate the media. I think there's a lot of good people that work at these companies and they're trying to figure out a way to move into this new world. And I don't expect them all to be visionaries, right? Like we're all just going to leave and we're all going to do this new thing, but it does give us a lot of freedom. And we had the freedom anyways before, because at certain at a certain point, you just aren't going to do what, what you're not going to do. And we've traditionally done less and less press as our career has gone on. And a lot of times it's because, yeah, when you're writing a record like The Stage, you don't want an article out there about fucking drug use and partying. And if that's how they're going to spin it every time, we'll just stop talking to you. As you bring a one-on-one connection with the fans and you get to control your whole ecosystem, there's a reason why this podcast exists. You get to hear it straight from the horse's mouth. You get to hear the truth. And there's no gotcha headlines or questions, right? It's very much a situation where, this is the facts. Um, and that's a, that's a freedom that is coming with the new age of technology and the new, you know, uh, landscape that we're dealing with. When we were writing Trash and Scattered, we were at the whim of basically the record's coming out. You're on a major label. You're going to talk to all these people. You're going to do as much press as you can. We're going to fight for a cover. Then you're going to go on this and this. And basically you're sitting there and you're doing press after press after press and you're drinking and you're tired. And then you just start talking about crazy shit and then you're fucked. (laughs) And so it's nice to have, you know, control. And that's what you want is you want to give control to artists. And now you get to get the truth. You might not get as many good stories, but uh, you're getting the truth. We're young. We're
2: getting some success. We're traveling around the world, having tons of fun. So, you know, we're wild. We're drinking. We're having a great time we're partying we're doing everything that you think that you're supposed to do and everything you want to do as the rock and roll lifestyle will permit but then you start getting the questions in the interviews and you answer them and you want to come off and tell them the truth or these wild stories and you you only focus on what they're trying to get you to focus on which is avenge sevenfold partying and avenge sevenfold wild and doing all this crazy shit and all of a sudden then they lose the plot that hey we're making these really epic songs and all they're writing about is how wild and crazy we are and how we dress crazy and there's no substance. And all of a sudden you start noticing the fans are like only care about the stuff that doesn't really matter. And here we are trying to be taken seriously. And it's, it's a whole revelation. Like, Hey, wait a minute. These guys are trying to make us look like we belong in the decline of Western civilization as a bunch of numbskulls. Like we need, People talking about more than just how much we can drink or how many chicks we get. Like, this is, we need to flip the script because we want to be taken seriously. We don't want to be an 80s hairband that is someday, you know, the butt of a joke. So we tried, you know, switching the narrative. We were young, we were naive, we didn't realize what the media was capable of.
1: After the first magazine does that, then everyone else just carbon copies that interview and then you get tired of doing that and then you're like trying to talk about something more seriously and they're not having it you know and it's like you're trying to steer the conversation and all they want to do is get back to that stuff and then you're and they want you to they want you to give the headline it's it's gotcha journalism at its finest they want to push you to say something that they can take to their editor and say i got him to say this and that's what, they were, that's what they were doing at the time. It, it became very obvious very quickly, I think, to all of us. But to me, I was like, oh, okay, that's what they're doing. They're not just having fun. They're actually trying to get headlines out of us. And that's where it was like, okay, we're done doing that. We're moving on from that part of our life. Uh, it was a good learning lesson. And we'll do the interviews, of course. But we're, you know, we're going we're gonna to stop talking about that, that side of our lives for the most part. But now here we are. All these years later, and we have a fucking podcast, much like mine, where I get to fucking talk about whatever the hell I want. And I control my own narrative. Drinks with Johnny, people. Swallow a big gulp of Drinks with Johnny. Drinks with Johnny is available wherever you get your podcasts. Drinks with Johnny, where we never drink responsibly.
4: of this begs the question though right where is the line between what the media was reporting and what Avenged Sevenfold were actually like
1: we got to be honest here we were partying we're five best friends fulfilling our dreams from childhood together out on the road and yeah when they at at the first go-around of of this popularity that we were gaining and being on covers of magazines and they wanted to talk to us reaching out to us for the first time you know we were having fun with it. You know, it was, a, it was a lesson to be learned. We learned kind of quickly that, like, well, they're just going to take the excerpts that they want, and that's going to be the headline. And that's what people are going to read, and that's what they're going to think about you. And it's like, well, you know, there was a whole other conversation, too, that happened, but this is what we're going to focus on. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's just – but that's just how a lot of – and I won't say that was every media outlet. I'd say I'd say you cheeky buggers over in the U.K. were probably the worst at it, you know. But they, it definitely was – it was something that we needed to go through and learn from, you know. We were partying, but that wasn't even, like, what the questions were. And we weren't even doing the things that we were answering half the time. Half the time we were answering to be funny, you know, just like, yeah. And then sometimes they were right, you know. You'd go out with the journalist the night before – He saw it all. It's not like we were fucking hiding it, you know? And we had a good time. We were in our early 20s and fucking drinking and partying and playing shows, out traveling the world, as I said, fulfilling our fucking, our dreams. Like, why not? Of course we were having a good time.
0: I think if you actually grew up with us, it was pretty wild, right? And the stories were real. We obviously lost, you know, a fallen member to that lifestyle. And sometimes they'd catch us in a situation where we'd just start talking about it. And then it does. it it is a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point where it is a very wild on-the-go lifestyle and you are being surrounded by people, whether it's after the show or on the tour buses or in your everyday life where these are people that it attracts more of those people and they're ready to just go, right? They're ready to party. They're ready to just push it to the limit and so it really is this kind of like cycle that the media definitely doesn't help it, right? It's it's basically advertising to everybody. This is what they do. Now, no one can survive all the time in that lifestyle. Like, obviously, we were very serious about writing records and working, but we were also very serious about kicking off the old boots and uh, having, having a good time. And we were no stranger to getting in physical altercations with people. We were no strangers to being... Hotheads, we are no strangers to poking the bear, like the no effect story, right, and challenging the whole the whole system. So it really was just one big ball of madness during that time, and the records just kept getting bigger and and more mainstream, and it just kind of fed the beast in a way.
4: All of which brings us to this month's crazy story. So. We are going to go back to February 2004 and London, England, where now, sadly not with us anymore, one of the victims of COVID, the Crowbar, was London's premier drinking establishment for 20-plus years for all things rock and roll, a tiny dive bar in the heart of London's Soho. With my own two eyes in this place, I have seen the likes of Dave Grohl, Lady Gaga... Dave Mustaine, Pink, all manner of people used to go and hide out at this little hellhole in London. I say that because the stairs to the toilets were an absolute death trap. Like, the place was chaos incarnate. And that's why things came to a head when Event Sevenfold had just played their first couple of shows in London in 2004 and started drinking and... um, The rest is history. And here is this history documented definitively.
0: I remember being at the crowbar with Paul from Kering, or he might've been at Hammer at the time. He's jumped around Paul Brannigan and we were drinking whiskey and Coke. I I remember it perfectly clear. And we were just sitting there having a drink. Everyone's there. I remember going to the restroom and there was someone in the stall and, and I had to pee really bad. And, uh, so I just started peeing in the sink. This guy comes out of the, you know, the stall, and he's, he's, he's like, irate. He's so mad. That's a, a British dude, and then he starts screaming at me, and I'm just, I just start laughing at him, and then I'm, I'm sitting there, and I just go, I, I just, I put my middle finger in his face or something. And I'm like, fuck you, fuck off, and I just walked out, and then proceeded to have the rest of my night, chilling. Drinking. And so we're all leaving the bar. And I remember this guy is out front and he's waiting for me with his friends. And he's like, You're the bloody bloke that was pissing in the sink, blah, blah. And I go, Yeah, fuck off. And we all start kind of surrounding and they're kind of surrounding. And I end up just punching him. Right. So I punch him. And as he's falling backward, his hand comes flailing and it hits me in the nose. And I don't feel anything at the time, but then I just feel liquid. And i and like my whole shirt is filled with blood. And I, I put my hand on my face and my nose is literally three inches on the side of my face. It's just on the side of my face, completely, completely broken. And I, I basically just grab my nose and I straighten it back out and you can hear all the clicks and all the cartilage, just, just brutal. And we all just start fighting everybody.
2: So I'm outside uh, smoking a cigarette and I see an altercation start happening and I'm just, I'm, you know, buzzing, and I'm looking at this and thinking, oh shit, what's going on? And then I notice it's Matt. And naturally my first instinct is I don't know what's happening. Run, punch the person that's <laughs> in the altercation with Matt. And that's what I did. And it's funny cause I'm really like not that guy, you know, <laughs> but I did.
0: Somebody that I don't know throws another guy through a, a window and one of the cars that are on the road, people are going crazy. someone, Punches Val. We're punching this guy. We're on top of one guy. I mean, it's just madness, right?
2: It was like a like a full free-for-all. I, I remember like the Rev running and throwing fists, and I get pulled by a bouncer, and I'm watching this, you know, Matt continue this fight over by this car. And this bouncer's telling me, Stop, don't do this. Just relax, mate. Just relax. And I'm like, okay, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do anything. And then I run and he's, no. I just remember the look on his face and I start running over there. And meanwhile, Jimmy's running back over there and it's just full mayhem. I mean, you know, sin might've been
0: in there. Like, I don't even know. And the police show up and and they don't have guns. And our police would have pulled guns on us instantly. We all would have stopped. But these these UK cops, they're just kind of trying to get us to stop and no one's stopping, everyone's fighting. And a guy runs up and is hits or pushes her. And then Jimmy right in front of the police just goes right over the top of her shoulder and knocks this guy right in the nose and busts his face. And so then the cops start trying to chase him because they're, now they're going to arrest him but he did it right in front of them. And so then he starts laughing and making fun of them because they don't have guns. And he keeps saying that he keeps saying like oh they're going to arrest me guys or like they're just going to with their silly clubs and just keeps laughing and running in circles around this pole and they're trying to get him. Everyone's cracking up. This guy's you know, getting off the floor and, you know, it's just a big disaster.
2: Jimmy doesn't take any authority seriously. Not even, not even in the slightest bit, not ever. And he's laughing, probably screaming. And, you know, I, I don't even know what he's saying. He's probably taunting them that they have, you know, their billy clubs or, or, or whatever. And I I don't fully remember, but they might've like pepper sprayed him or something. And they, they finally subdued him because he thought he was just going to get away or run away like he would normally do. But they actually stopped him, subdued him. And we're just like, oh shit, we need to get out of here before we get arrested. So we all piled in a cab and we took off to our hotel, which is a total shithole of a hotel. And for some reason, there was a girl in the cab with me and she just ended up going back to the hotel with me, <laughs> which I don't really know how that fits into the story or why there was a girl in the cab that decided to
0: take off back to our shitty hotel. We all get away kind of scot free and I have to go actually place my nose more in place because I look at it in the mirror and it was part of my nose had gone into the center and part of it was still crooked. So I kept trying to push it to the center. And uh we get back to the hotel room and then we start in on Johnny. We're like, hey Johnny, we were getting jumped and I saw you running. I was getting I needed help and I held my hand out and I saw you just turn your back on me. And we were just we were just fucking with him because he was new and he just he took it real serious because he was bummed that Jimmy was in jail and he was drinking a lot. And we just kept going like, yeah, Johnny turned his back on us, man. Johnny doesn't care about us.
2: Johnny would always refer to Jimmy as Big Brother. We said, how could you do that to Big Brother and let him get arrested? And, you know, how how could you ever dream of just letting Big Brother down? like that? And he was so bummed. I mean, he just had tears in his eyes. He was so, so sad.
3: I was not there. I didn't see a fucking second of this. They woke me up when they got back to our one hotel room we shared with everybody. Johnny was fucking hammered. Jimmy was gone. <laughs> Jimmy was in jail and, and they didn't want to fucking stop. <laughs> they they just kept picking on Johnny. Johnny was now so belligerent when Johnny gets belligerent. He does. A lot of people don't realize he starts a lot of shit. He's very antagonistic, very antagonistic. He is, He's classic little brother. Just, you know, poking away, poking away until you fucking punch him or do something. So, I mean, we did really horrifying things to this guy. The Like things, unspeakable things.
1: The joke afterward was that uh, Jimmy said, oh, I saw Johnny walk around the corner. and I was getting jumped by like five guys and he just walked right by. So that fucking didn't happen. So they started this whole rumor that I was like just fucking hiding in the corner or something. I was like, it was just fucking chaos. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. I didn't know who to hit. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. By the time I, I was aware that there was even a fight, it was basically over. It happened really quick.
4: Do we have the best stories on this podcast or what? Thanks to the guys for their honesty as always. And the redemption of Johnny Christ at the end there, I think is a nice full stop. Now, just to finish up talking about Trashed and Scattered, 2007 in Liverpool, England was the last time that this song was played live. So let's talk a little bit about its possibility of ever making its way back into the live set. But that's it for Trashed and Scattered, a true gem, a true diamond in the rough. If you will, but yeah, here is why it hasn't been played live since two thousand seven.
1: It's it's just the the riffage in it. That's again, you can hear it one way, and you're like, oh, that's just like a shreddy shreddy uh, uh, riff in the verses. But then, if you actually listen to it and peel it apart a little bit, that is an intricate rhythm to play over and over and over again for five and a half fucking minutes. That's a long time to be doing that and playing it live um, from front to back. We we had a, a, a ongoing joke calling it Stiffler. We 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 would name that song Stiffler because it was so. It almost felt stiff because you had to like really dig into this fucking rhythm and play it as well as you can live. And, you know, over the years or over the times of playing it, obviously it got better. But the first few times it was like, it was a fucking train wreck. Like trying to play that through all the way and only having a couple of breaks from that rhythmic pattern. And that pattern is, is really intricate. Like <laughs> maybe not to today's standards, but definitely then. It was fucking intricate to play that pattern over and over. And I would I would love when I got those breaks of bo 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 you know i was like fuck yeah that's all right i got through that one all right let's get back to the verse again
2: you know i don't really know why we haven't thrown it back into the set and i'm sure that we probably will hopefully before we get too old because it's a it's a hell of a song to play you have me playing one part singing one harmony as a lead, Sinister playing another duel to that lead, singing another harmony, Matt singing on top of it, but it was really fun to play. It's challenging, but that's what people come for. That's what they want to see.
4: And that's a wrap on episode two on Trashed and Scattered from Tracks, the official Avenged Sevenfold podcast powered by Death Bats Club. Thank you for being with us. Make sure you subscribe. Don't forget, a7xworld.com to go and get the Trashed and Scattered T-shirt. Shout out to Dylan777R for putting that together. And of course, be in the Death Bats Club Discord. Letters from the DBC coming up very shortly. You'll get your opportunity to ask the guys some questions, so make sure you're in the Discord for that. And of course, a one of one nft trashed and scattered going to be given away in the deathbats club discord my name's bees been an honor to be with you again and we'll see you next time for more tracks from avenge So first letter from the DBC, Matt, comes from Danny Taro, who asks in conjunction with what we've been talking about today, what is the craziest thing that someone has invented about you? Like a false story or rumors by the media? And that could be you personally or the band at large.
0: Okay. So I know there's some, and I'm, I don't know if it's the funniest, but a lot of people, I'm, I'm a pretty staunch atheist. Like I'm agnostic. I, I, we could talk about a million different theories, but one of them that I'm not is Catholic. And if you go on my Wikipedia, it's like, he's a Catholic boy from blah, 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 and grew up in like this. And that one kind of irks me, even though it's like, but it's not a crazy one. I've had, I've had ones where a lot of ones with like vocal cord surgeries where they're just not true. Like, oh, he did this, you know, or, or I can't scream anymore because they uh, they cut his vocal cords. Or like, you, people make things up like, oh, really, how does that even work? Um, I don't know. I'd have to think. I've seen some really funny things. One like that. I play the clarinet, I think. Like, I definitely don't play the clarinet. Like, I definitely have you don't.
4: Have played, played, played anything like that?
0: No, never even close. I have no. You, you
4: can't play Suicide Note Part 2 on a clarinet.
0: No, I can't. No. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, you always see random stuff, but I don't know. I don't think anything has been that crazy.
4: This question comes from Jude. Jude, it's a great question. Thanks for your question. Zachy. That's you. I get the feeling that most fans know where Jimmy, Matt, and Sin fit in the writing process, but we've never gotten info on what your contribution to the songwriting is besides lyrics. Do you help with guitar parts or song structure in any way?
2: Yeah, so in the earlier albums, I was writing a ton of riffs, melodies, guitar lines, uh, because I had to. I mean, it was me and Matt bouncing ideas off each other, trying to create this new sound, And as we progressed, you know, incorporating Sin and the Rev, they started adding these new elements and there became these new dynamics. And, you know, Sin would sit and write with Matt. And all of a sudden I would hear what they're coming up with and say, this is fucking amazing. This is stuff I would never think to do. Like, yeah, where are you guys going with this? This is awesome. You know, and a little bit of maybe what if we tried this or just a, a touch because when people are doing something great, You don't want to hinder it. You don't want to get in the way. Do what you guys are doing. I cannot wait to hear where this is going. Encourage it. Um, The Rev kind of held back on writing and stuff. And he, you know, when he first kind of threw his hat in the ring and and handed us just a skeleton of a little piece of heaven, it was like, fucking finish this. Like bring it to life. Let us help bring it to life. What can I do? You know, what don't you want me to do? Do you want me to go fucking hide? I'll do that. Like let's bring this to life. But whatever you do, don't stop what you're doing. And that goes for, for anyone. So I'm always there to interject if I need to. You got five different people trying to write music on the best and worst days of their life. Uh, I love writing riffs. I love vocal melodies. Um, sometimes it's just a philosophic idea. How can we make this song better? What if we tried this? Um, sometimes it's bringing a thousand riffs to the table and throwing a thousand riffs away. So I'm, I'm really there just to make sure the songs come to life and it's as much as I need to do or as little as I need to do because, I mean, you have Matt's writing brilliant parts and The Rev and, you know, if Johnny brings a, an amazing bass line or, or anything or Sin's writing, you don't wanna, you just don't wanna get in the way of ruining something great. But it's real, there's a lot of important uh, behind the scenes stuff where sometimes you, I have to step up, throw my hat in the ring to make sure that some of this stuff comes to life. And I'm I'm really just there to do anything I can to help and make sure
4: that we're always keeping our fans on their toes. So I'm obsessed with music documentaries, Zachy, and I always love watching the role of the producer and how they contribute. Now, you guys self-produce, so it feels like that's a way that you personally really contribute, just listening to what you just said. Um, I, I I truly believe that's
2: all of Avenged Sevenfold. I mean, that's, that's what we do. We have these grandiose ideas and we, we bring them to the table and it's a very delicate mixture of adding layers, adding each person's individual flavor, but not sticking your dirty fingers in it and swirling it around to mess it up. So it's a very either hands off approach or hands on, whatever needs to be done. And that goes for everyone in the band, you know, sin and, 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 Shadows work really well together writing on the last few albums. It's just like they have ideas, they bounce back and forth. And if there becomes a stalemate where they're just like, this is fucking hard. I'll interject myself and, you know, try and smooth out the process, get everyone back in the room because that's where the magic lies. I want to hear what these guys are writing. I want to see it come to life. I don't want them to get frustrated. I don't want them to, you know, have five different guys at five at all times fighting for to throw their riff in there. We can all write riffs. We can all write melodies, but who can really sit back and throw it away if it's not going to make the best Avenged Sevenfold song that fits in the album, that fits in that time and place in our life? That's where my contribution
4: comes in. And uh, where does the magic lie in the new album, Zachy Vengeance? Oh, man. Uh, The new album, The Magic, lies
2: in creating a sound that is uniquely Avenged Sevenfold and not like anything else we've heard. Nothing we've ever heard. That's that's where the magic is. It's gonna be completely unexpected. It's gonna blow people's minds. It's gonna piss people off. It's gonna do what we've always done since day one. And, and how do you do that? Well, you just go as berserk as you can. You write the craziest shit that people are not expecting from you. And you have to be fearless.